Cambridge Union. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Neha, I'm the Equalities Officer this time, um, and it does truly mean so much to see so many of you here today um, for our first panel of the time. So in putting together this panel, the kind of thought process behind it um, was that India is the world's largest democracy, and when I came into this role, um, I felt like the union hadn't done many events around India and Indian politics. Um, and as someone who is Indian, I thought this was really important for the union to discuss this, but do this particularly in terms of like the perspectives and the terms of Indians themselves. Um, and particularly with the general election coming up soon, um, we think it's still relevant as ever to provide perspectives on what life and what politics in India is like beyond kind of what we hear from the ruling government and what the ruling government wants the international community to kind of take away. Um, so in terms of our speakers this evening, um, it is quite a fantastic trio of speakers. So we have Dr. Agashi Bhatt, who is a surgeon and clinical researcher at the University of Oxford, but more importantly, the daughter of Sanjeev Bhatt, a jailed IPS officer who was the last surviving witness to Modi's involvement in the 2002 Gujarat riots. Um, as well as this, we have Professor Natasha Cole, who is a writer and professor at the University of Westminster um, and the director for their center of the study of democracy. Um, and lastly, we have Mr. Ashish Ray, who is the longest serving Indian correspondent, um, who has also spent the last year as an academic visitor at St. Anthony's College, Oxford. So as you can see, we have an excellent kind of lineup um, for this panel. So it's really exciting that all of you um, can be here with us tonight. But just on a really like personal and kind of cringe note, um, this was kind of the only thing that my parents really understood about the union time card. So it does on a really personal level mean like a lot that all of you are here today. But also I, like could not introduce this panel um, without a big thank you to the Cambridge Marjolies um, for helping me put together this panel because we truly couldn't have done it um, without them. So established in 1891, the Cambridge Marjolies is a politics, cultural and debating society that has hosted some of South Asia's greatest, greatest minds, um, including Muhammad Ali Jinnah and Subhas Chandra Bosch. Um, and so they have some really exciting events this time, including a debate that I'm personally very excited about on the decline of communism in South Asia. Um, so that's happening on the 15th of October. So please do check them out. If you check the back of the order papers um, that were on all of your seats, there's more details about both the union and the Marjlis. Um, but also some last kind of notices before I hand over to the panelists and our wonderful moderators. Um, firstly, the discount on lifetime memberships at the union um, is only happening until the 13th of October. Um, so by this, like, to this period, it'll be only 190 pounds for lifetime membership. So please do get a membership if you come, to, if you really like this panel and you'd like to come to more union events um, after that period. But also on Tuesday, we have a Millie B speaker event at 8 p.m. So do also come to that. Um, and then two last things, we have access memberships if you're in a Cambridge bursary and the Silver Street scholarships are now also open. So we do have financial support for anyone who'd like to become a member as well. Um, but lastly, at 6 p.m. today, we did release tickets for the Oxford and Cambridge Union boat parties. So that's the first kind of Oxford-Cambridge swap that we've ever had. Um, and it's on the 22nd of October in London. So do check out the tickets for that as well. But without further ado, um, please welcome to stage and our panelists. Thank you. Hello everyone and uh, good evening and thank you for the Cambridge Union for having us. 
Um, so if it's okay with everyone, we're going to get right into it. So um, I think perhaps a good place to start in a panel on India Beyond Modi is to consider the most vivid realities under the Modi administration. And so I want to come to you, Dr. Bhatt, and ask you, could you begin by telling us about your father, Dr. Sanjeev Bhatt, and some of what he's advocated for and how the Modi government has responded? Um, so just to give a bit of context for people who don't already know about this, um, 2002 perhaps marked one of the darkest phases in modern-day India. Narendra Modi, who was then the de facto chief minister, um, he, in the light of an accident which happened on, Godhra train, on the Godhra station, he, as a sitting chief minister, instead of ensuring law and order was maintained, ended up stoking communal tension and violence in order to capitalize on the polarizing sentiment in the state. What then followed was mass impunity. On the very night of the incident, 27 February 2002, Narendra Modi called an unofficial meeting at his house, at his residence, where clear instructions were given for the administration and the police to step down and look the other way and let the Hindus vent their anger. Sanctioned violence by the state the riots that took place in the state of Gujarat did not just last for a few days, went on for months, where systematically the Muslim community was targeted and massacred. And all of this happened at the behest of and with the aid of Modi's government. My father, Mr. Sanjeev Bhatt, was the deputy director of the intelligence bureau then. He was present in that meeting where these instructions were given. And he is the sole surviving witness to Modi's complicit role and function in orchestrating the Gujarat pogrom. Since the riots, multiple um, investigating agencies were set up to look into the role of Modi and his administration. However, what transpired in those years was that either people would just feign amnesia for the people who were present in that meeting, they came forward and said that they don't remember what happened in the meeting, or they completely denied any kind of instructions given by Modi. My father was the only man who came forward and provided evidence, incriminating evidence, before various commissions as well as in the Supreme Court of India. Throughout the period of the investigation, from 2009 till 2011, depositions which were meant to be confidential were leaked in real time. And the SIT, the special investigating team that was set up, which was supposed to be looking into the role and function of the Gujarat government in orchestrating the riots, they were working day and night to cover up the whole uh, orchestration instead of actually holding the people accountable for it. My father in 2011 submitted a sworn affidavit in the Supreme Court of India providing evidence of the collusion between the SIT and the state as well as Modi's direct involvement in the riots. The morning he files the affidavit, that very evening he's suspended from duty. Since then till now, he has been fighting relentlessly to bring justice to the thousands who were massacred brutally by the Modi regime, only so that Modi could retain power in the state. Today, in order to silence that one man, the one person who can hold Modi accountable, the state machinery is being used to falsely implicate my father and silence his voice once and for all. In 2018, my father was taken away from our home under trumped-up charges and was, in, and was 
framed in a case which he was not even party to and he has been given a life imprisonment statement for a crime he did not commit. A vitiated trial was conducted. We were not allowed to call any defense witness. We were not allowed to cross-examine any prosecution witness. And even though there was absolutely no evidence, my father was persecuted and put in jail to silence him once and for all. For the last 22 years, my father has been fighting day and night to bring justice for the victims of the riots. He still continues to fight at great personal and professional cost, and we continue to fight to bring justice for him. Thank you. So you've spoken a little bit. Thank you very much. And, and as you mentioned there, the role of the courts and the role of the judiciary. And um, I just, I guess that almost the natural next question is, uh, how has the Indian judici judiciary transformed under the Modi government? And Professor Kaul, I wonder if I could come to you first. Um, a lot of your work has been about those on the margins. And I guess we want to ask what the role of the courts is in impacting the work and the lives of those on the margins. Thank you very much. And so in a functioning, uh, in a functioning democracy, it is important that there be checks and balances and media and the courts are important you know, ways of ensuring that. Uh, if we look at what's happening today, the antecedents of it go back in time. Uh, if you would remember, before, they, uh, before the present government came to power the second time, in 2017 January, the topmost judges of the highest court in the land held an open press conference in January of that year, speaking directly to the media and saying, this is several years ago, right? I'm talking about 2017, saying that the judiciary is under threat, the judicial freedoms are being eroded, and we worry for the future of democracy in India. So no one can say that, they, that this wasn't coming. It's been in the making for a long time, and certainly quite explicitly. It's unprecedented for the judges to directly address the media, for four topmost judges directly to address the media and say that. Uh, now, what has been happening since is that there's, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's this um, way in which the present... Okay, let's go back again to 2019, after Kashmir's autonomy was revoked. Okay. The, the Chief Justice at the time, who also had other cases of sexual harassment against him, Ranjan Gogoi was his name, the Chief Justice at the time refused to entertain that case, even though it was an important matter and should have been entertained. Uh, move forward again to the present. We now have a new Chief Justice, uh, you know, Justice Chandra, uh, Chief Chandra Justice of the uh, Supreme Court of India, Justice Chandrachud, and he's given some, you know, some good judgments. But the point is that we cannot rely upon the whimsicality of, of, uh, you know, of the judiciary. We can't rely on the good faith of individuals. The judiciary runs through a system where you have to have principles be followed. So, for example, in the case of the recent violence against, especially against women and intra-ethnic tensions in Manipur, the, the, the Supreme Court actually, you know, pulled the government to task and said, well, you know, take Suomoto, taking Suomoto cognizance and saying that, please tell us within 24 hours, what are you going to do about it? Great, you know, that should have happened. Uh, the need for it should not have existed in the first place, but it should have happened. On the other hand, in the recent arrests just a few days ago of NewsClick journalists, a media portal, a wide variety of journalists, including independent journalists who had written for that portal, had their devices seized, had their bail be denied, and when their, when their lawyers approached the court and said, can we at least see a copy of the FIR, can we see what the charges are against us, the, the judge said, come back tomorrow. Now that is, is, is remarkable. So, it's, so you can't actually rely on a situation where the judiciary may be nice, but may not be nice, because the judiciary is supposed to follow the, you know, to ensure all of these things happen. 
another thing, following on from the Gujarat riots uh, situation, I mean, over the last years, we have seen a large number of bails being granted to people who were under life imprisonment for the most egregious acts of violence. And this includes people who either were directly or very directly involved in cases where pregnant women were killed, you know, fetuses were torn out of their wombs in those pregnant Muslim women, I should say. And, and the people who were, who were by court sentenced, uh, you know, as the aftermath of that, people like Maya Kodnani and others, over a Babu Bajrangi, over a long period of time, they've had their sentences be reversed and they've, they've been able to, you know, the, the Gujarat High Court has reversed their sentences, they've been, they've been freed. So, so the wider question here is that, uh, is that we, what we are seeing is that the judicial independence, the judicial, the, the, the role and nature of a judiciary in a democracy is being eroded. But I just draw your attention to many instances which show how this was a long time in the making. Umar Khalid, who's a student at JNU, who did his PhD at JNU, uh, he's, uh, you know, he, he was, uh, again, the process is the punishment. Keeping people in prison for long periods of time without trial is the punishment. So when Umar Khalid was initially a JNU activist, JNU is a university, when, uh, uh, you know, and when these people were, were taken to court, there were lawyers marching in support of the right wing on the streets. And before even any sentencing or any trial, these people were, including Umar Khalid, were attacked, including by having stones thrown at them in the court, you know, kind of campus. So there's this, this is a wide-ranging, multi-spectrum, uh, you know, problem that has been in the making for a long time and just gets accelerated every day. Um, and Mr. Ray, what do you think about this in your work uh, over the years? How, how have you seen this transformation take place? Uh, I should uh, emphasize that my observation is only from a distance because I've lived in this country for 46 years. So uh, I have seen, though, uh, from a distance, a gradual crumbling of the Indian judicial system. And uh, in 2002, for instance, the crime committed by Narendra Modi has not been brought to justice as yet. And this uh, failure reflects uh, a tremendous shortcoming in the criminal justice system in India. And this has gradually become worse. Today, there is a political capture of the judiciary. And so um, at the high court level and below, um, the quality of justice, I think, is debatable. Uh, at the Supreme Court level, only when somebody like the current Chief Justice, Justice uh, Chandrachud, comes and enters office, and under his leadership, there's a ray of hope. But this hasn't happened for a long time. There have been a series of Chief Justices who have fallen prey uh, to the government, and therefore the system has become politicized. There's no rule of law in India today. For the past nine and a half years, what we have seen is uh, an emergency in a sinister manner. Uh, quite often, my young, younger colleagues in India, they compare what's happening today, like for instance, the raid on this uh, news portal called uh, News Click as something that happened during the emergency. Now, there is no comparison for the simple reason that while the emergency was wrong in 1975 to 77, uh, what happened was it was imposed constitutionally under the provisions in the Indian constitution. So it was immoral to do so, we can argue that, but the fact is it wasn't done in a clandestine manner. But 
what has happened in the last nine and a half years is a complete disregard of the rule of law. And this has happened in a motivated manner, in a premeditated manner, and it is not unexpected. Because let me say this, let me not beat around the bush. Narendra Modi is a con man and a criminal. And he, his corruption is at a colossal level. It runs into billions of pounds and dollars, not a few uh, million here and there. So this is the kind of person who has captured power in India. And therefore, you can see the crumbling at various levels. You can see the crumbling at the parliamentary <coughs> level because parliament is today under the thumb of the executive. So this is not just the judiciary, but it goes back a long time. It, this has been investigated by a man called Ashish Nandi, who happens to be one of India's leading psychoanalysts. He examined Narendra Modi when he was uh, uh, practically a nobody in the, in the 1990s. And he came back with a clinical conclusion that he was a textbook fascist. Now, this terminology was not used as a form of abuse. It was a clinical conclusion. And one of his conclusions also was, after that uh, interview that he did, was that this man is capable of mass murder. And that mass murder happened in 2002 in Gujarat. In the context of all of this, I think something that the Modi government often uses to um, progress the image that they are progressive is the idea of smart India and the use of you know, digitization and connectivity across the nation, especially in rural areas, um, as kind of a beacon of hope and of India's progress that is to come. Uh, um, Professor Cole, could you tell us about some of the potential implications that might arise from this digital transformation? Um, especially thinking of uh, what we've seen recently with Pegasus spyware, um, as well as some privacy concerns that have come around with Aadhaar, and more recently, like you said, with Kashmir, there's, uh, you know, mass internet shutdowns. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, may I just uh, preface my remarks with a moment of, of just, uh, you know, of, of clarifying something that, in my view, is important. I think it's certainly something that I would want to put out there. I think it is important for the people here and people who care about the subversion of democracy to understand that it is more than just about Modi. That it isn't just about one person, whatever one's views about him might be. And the reason I say that is one, because it's part of what is something that is happening globally. So you see the erosion of democracy in multiple countries under very similar kinds of leaders. And it's important to step beyond the methodological nationalism and see that this is not about a person, it's about changing of a common sense. And, uh, you know, and to those who in this room might not know, it is important to see how BJP-led Modi, rather than a person, has actually been supported by RSS, the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, which is a right-wing paramilitary, and that the RSS there also has that common sense which is shared by large numbers of people. And the mechanism for doing that is technology, is the media, is the, the sort of the everyday level of that interaction. So when we think about something like WhatsApp, the role of WhatsApp in India has been, I mean, there have been academic work on this. People do not, re people rely on the WhatsApp forwards that they get from IT cells of the of political parties, and in this case, the BJP, which is quite active, and there's been work to demonstrate how that's the case, and they think that is the final word, that is the truth. They actually form their opinions on the basis of that. 
the media, the televisual media, it's remarkable that unlike other countries, we there can be 70 channels, but compared to any other country, you would all of those channels would be covering just that spectrum of opinion. So it's different from the US in that you don't have a Fox versus CNN. You actually have versions of Fox, which are basically all the different channels. So so the, the way in which technology is is helping this present regime is on the one hand saying that, you know, we're going to be uh, doing smart digital high technology things at the same time in the name of in the name of um, protecting citizens' rights, such as with a proposed legislation, in the name of protection of digital rights and people's privacy, subverting precisely that and restricting their right to information. So it's actually a really clever mechanism which uses the right sorts of argument that appeal within the country and outside to actually subvert the precise rationale for that. Uh, so you actually have now the role of WhatsApp, the, the, the problems with the media, the surveillance, which, you know, which is basically just uh, take, taken as given this because there's the current chief, uh, the information commissioner who's just resigned, uh, who's just uh, finished his tenure, did not over his entire tenure, you know, help people's access to information in any way. So this idea that where uh, you know India is 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 helping with technology and and uh, you know it, it ties in with the interests of a wide variety of multinational international corporates that would like to have access to that kind of data because my God this is such a great kind of experimental lab to do this uh, but at the same time it's uh, disastrous for people within the country uh, whose rights are being trampled but those very people are enrolled into a common sense that they don't see it in this way. Uh, in, you know, in, in this particular way. So, yeah. And uh, what do you think about that, Dr. Prat? No, what she's, I mean, resonating with what she said, the Indian media, technology, media, instead of enabling people to form a critical opinion of their own, it is actually working as a propaganda machinery. So you have one narrative, the narrative that the government wants you to know about, the only one-sided version of the story, which is being constantly projected on the screens in print media as well as digital media. And today, all of this, be it newspapers, be it media houses, all of them are owned by two big business houses, Adani's and Ambani's, both of whom, they bankroll Modi and BJP's um, electoral campaigns. So there is such a firm grip using technology. Right now, they are trying to brainwash, if you may, in a way, but kind of hammer a narrative into the mind of the electorate so that they stop using their own agency, they stop critically analyzing any situation. When Modi comes up on the stage and ends up in absolute theatrics, promises uh, bringing back black money or saying that, oh, there are so many million jobs that he's created, no one is using their agency. They read it on WhatsApp, they read it on the internet, they see it on the digital media, and they lap it up and they're like, okay, yes, if all of them are saying it, it would be correct. We've stopped questioning, we've stopped critically analyzing, and they've done that using technology. Um, and on the topic of Adani and Ambani and some of these industrialists, uh, Mr. Ray, perhaps you could tell us about the economic impact of uh, the Modi government, both in terms of the politics and in terms of their economic policies. Um, and also whether India's gotten closer to uh, this image of a political and economic global force to be reckoned with that the BJP has really tried to sell. Before I come to that, if I may just add uh, a few words to the media aspect, because that's where I come from. Um, what has happened is this, that uh, historically, private print media has dominated the market in India. And up to 
the early 90s, it was also state-controlled radio and television that dominated the market. But thereafter, there's been a change and there's been a great explosion of private uh, television channels and gradually news uh, channels were granted licenses and they came into being, start, starting with NDTV and then Ajtak, which is a Hindi uh, channel and so on. Um, so what's happened in the last, let's say, nine, 10 years is that the traditional media, as we describe it, was uh, effectively taken over by Modi and his gang. And how did that happen? It happened by two different means. One was sheer intimidation. So you go and tell the proprietor that unless you play ball, then uh, this is what we're going to do to you. The second was inducement through advertisements. Because while there was this great hype in the 2014 election of an economic miracle taking place, it did not happen. And I know this from a very direct source, which is Arun Jaitley, who was finance minister, who would constantly come to London and complain that the private sector is not investing. So it was not just the foreign private sector, but also the Indian private sector. And therefore, advertisements dried up from that uh, circle and the government advertisement became all important. So this was the second method by which you control media by providing a load of advertisements uh, and not just from the government but also from the party and nobody knows where that money came from. But if you venture to India for any election, even a state election in a small state, you will find that the newspapers there, the local papers are plastered with full-page advertisements from the ruling party, which is the BJP. So these were the two methods. Of course, parallel to this, the rise of digital media, the expansion of digital media, also created another platform for the BJP. And in this respect, Modi in particular was well ahead of others in the game. And, and so therefore, he had a distinct advantage. I dare say, though, that what's happening today is that uh, the days of a 24-hour news channel are dwindling. I, I dare say that their days are numbered because the viewership has been falling for a considerable period. People are into their palm tops, so they get their quick alerts from there, and that is good enough for them. They don't have the time, the, the patience to watch uh, half-hour news bulletin. So what has happened is that digital media has emerged as very, very important. It's, it's even a rival. Somebody like Ravish Kumar, who used to be, if I may inform people who may not have heard about him, he used to be a presenter in a Hindi channel, which is called NDTV. Uh, NDTV have uh, two uh, channels, English and uh, Hindi. So he was the lead presenter there, and a very popular one. And he consistently took this uh, line of independence and freedom of media and democracy and so on. But eventually what happened, and this is where I come back to your reference to Adani. Uh, Adani, an industrialist uh, who has, uh, uh, I don't know by how many times he's increased his wealth during the last nine years, but he took over this channel. And um, Ravish Kumar left NDTV 
as a result. And today, he has a channel on YouTube which is drawing 10 million subscribers, which is more than what his channel NDTV at prime time is drawing. So this is the new uh, battle. And I dare say here that uh, Congress is not doing badly, which is the main opposition party, not doing badly on this platform. Because all these independent journalists have come round to the view that something very seriously wrong has happened to India. And therefore, they have no alternative other than to back the only force, the only alternative uh, to BJP, which is the Congress. Uh, but uh, if I may, just uh, very quickly. Yes, this, been a, this has been a trend of uh, big business buying um, television channels and, and media in general, um, partly because of the failure of uh, the TV channels to make profits. And so they crumble and then the, the, they become easy uh, meat in terms of uh, a, a buyout. So this is what has happened. And so the Ambani's, and, uh, or, or in this case, the Mukesh Ambani group and Gautam Adani, they have picked up a lot of uh, media outlets uh, which are all pro-Modi and uh, that's, uh, I don't know whether that's a great investment but then they have plenty of money and it doesn't matter. Um, and just going back to economic, the economic impact of this, uh, kind of considering other Modi's politics in general which arguably is a politics of communalism and as well as his specific economic policies including demonetization uh, among others. What do you think has his net uh, economic impact been? Because I do think there is an image that, uh, that is again uh, one of the things that a lot of Modi supporters would advocate for as something uh, that's improved under his regime as compared to um, those that have come in the past. Well, first of all, I'm not an economist. Uh, so I can only uh, provide you what is uh, a very basic understanding of what's been happening. Um, of course, there's been ballistic propaganda and claims that India is doing extremely well. But uh, the very fact that uh, India is where it is um, proves that it has not done all that well. And it is not a GDP growth of 6% plus which matters because let's not forget, we are starting from a very low base uh, from what happened during, the, uh, during, the, during COVID where the Indian economy retracted by 24%. So from that to have a 6% growth is not a huge amount of growth, but it is bound to happen. Even if it's 10%, 12%, it's not uh, uh, impossible. Um, having said that, I think the real markers have to be employment. It's a very important marker. And today, unemployment is at a record level. You know, people say that this is the highest after 1978. The fact is we don't have figures before 1978. In my view, unemployment in percentage terms has never been greater in India, in, in post-independent India. So that is the real state of affairs. People in fancy drawing rooms in Delhi, Bombay and Calcutta may feel that they are fine, but the masses are not fine. And that is where it matters. The prices are much too high for the ordinary person to cope with. And there is, of course, this discrimination, which is nationwide. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, have, going back a little bit, actually, to what you were talking about in terms of media and intimidation, 
Um, and this is a question for everyone, I guess, I guess to kind of almost to, to, to summarise the way in which we've been talking about Modi's had an impact on India and the BJP and in, in, their, in government have had an impact on India. Um, a report by the British government um, following the um, 2002 riots in Gujarat um, referred to the climate of impunity um, created by Modi, who was then Chief Minister of Gujarat. Um, and I guess I would like, I, I was wondering if all of you could just summarise, um, how would you place this climate of impunity in view of everything that we've discussed so far? Does it resonate with you? And would you say that this climate of impunity is being called into question, for instance, with recent developments in dip diplomatic relations between India and Canada? So, Dr. Butt, if I could come to you first about this climate of impunity. So, this climate of impunity, also mm. intimidation, has been going on for the last 22 years. Mm initially just restricted to Gujarat and then now Pan-India. And one needs to remember that intimidation comes in various different forms. Intimidation also comes through judicial harassment as well. So today, when you go to the court seeking justice and when the very courts, the Supreme Court is supposed to be the custodian of our constitution and therefore, by that virtue, it is also the custodian of our civil liberties. But when you go to the court seeking for justice and the Courts are being actively used to persecute dissenters. They are actively used to silence any voice of dissent and to just cover up and protect Modi and his regime. Then we are going wrong somewhere here. So, of course, there is intimidation, impunity, of course. In, so, giving a very personal example, our family, through all of these years, when my father was deposing before different forums, there was threat to life, there was threat to the family's life, intimidation in various different forms. He continued to depose, he continued to fight at great personal and professional cost. In 2011, the very morning when he submits the affidavit, providing incriminating evidence against Modi, that very same evening, my father was suspended from duty. 2014, Narendra Modi becomes prime minister. Within a month's time, my father is dismissed from duty under the frivolous grounds of being absent absent for the days when he was deposing before various forums against Modi. So that is also intimidation. And all of these years, the way that we have functioned, there have been, I mean, sometimes when we look back, it is a miracle in a way that we've survived. There have been numerous attempts at his life in order to silence him. And today as well, like throwing him in jail, ensuring that he does not get justice, that we don't get that one fair day in court, so that, there has been this atmosphere and then throughout India, there is this constant atmosphere of fear that if you raise voice against Modi, you will be thrown in jail because dangerous examples are being set of individuals like my father, like journalist Ms. Gauri Lankesh, who was shot dead right outside her own house because she wrote an article exposing the RSS. So there is a continuing atmosphere of impunity, but that also needs to be countered, and that can only be countered when defenders will continue to raise their voice and when public will defend the very defenders who are now being persecuted. Thank you. do you want to answer that? Is there, do you have another question after that about, is there? Yeah. No, because there's something else I need to say, so I don't want to distract from the flow. Maybe you want to answer this and then I'll... <laughs> well, I, I think... She's put it very well. All I'll say is this climate of impunity is existing across the board. I mean, what has happened in the last few days of a news organization being attacked in the manner it was 
is a climate of impunity, of uh, bulldozers turning up at people's houses is a climate of impunity. And how is this happening? Now, I go back to this uh, reference I made to the emergency in uh, the 1970s. Now, if a police officer turned up at your house and uh, took you away to the police station, then he was doing so under emergency powers. But there, there are no such powers today. So that is the sinister nature of the environment today. So a policeman turns up and he simply takes a, a man away to prison and takes his telephone, his mobile phone away, his laptop away. And this is completely unlawful. You cannot do this. And then they arrest two people and they say that you cannot uh, know what the reason is for your arrest. So they simply ask for what's known as an FIR, a first information report on why uh, they have been arrested, what is the charge against them, no answer. You have no right to ask uh, for this. They were told that you have to apply to the police commissioner to get a copy of the FIR. So this is the climate of how is it that that police officer dares to do a thing like this because of the climate, the license which has been created by the Modi regime. Um, to, I mean, I just, I mean, just to add to that, I mean, uh, as uh, you know, I want to speak as an academic who's worked on, uh, you know, on, on the rise of the right wing in India for a long period of time. Of course, there is a climate of impunity and the question is impunity for whom? So, uh, you know, if there are these Hindu uh, right-wing gatherings where people clad in saffron have made really hateful remarks, right? So this was on video and it went public. Uh, the, the one person who was arrested at one of these uh, dharmsansads, they're called, was actually a Muslim person who had you know, converted and who was, so it's, it's basically depending, so your, your rights and freedoms have come to be associated quite closely with your identity of who the normative citizen of the country is. So the extent to which you can take, you know, you can take your liberties as given depends on who you are. And if you, and that is intersectional, it's allied with who you know, it's allied with what your religion is, quite importantly, what your caste is. And, uh, you know, and, and obviously in, in North India, it's a lot more severe. And, and that kind of thing makes it, makes accountability really difficult. I mean, I will also add that we are talking about a context which, where all kinds of structures that have a colonial past were set up to be extractive, whimsical and arbitrary in the first place. So justice was never something that you had easily, you know, easy access to. And what this has done, what 2014 onwards has done, is that it's just that same thing, but on a whole lot more speed. Now it's just a lot harder for a lot more people. I mean, you know, it's just become something that, where, where it's difficult to ask questions, even if you could formerly have done that. Uh, so it's, uh, it, so yeah, there is, there is that climate of impunity. And it's uh, sad to say, which is what I wanted to say, uh, you know, before, but maybe you'll ask that question, is that it's, it's actually got a, a large number of people backing it. A lot of people think this makes sense. It's good for the country, and what Modi is doing is good and right. It's not happening against the common sense. It's happening with the common sense of the country on board with it. Um, and alluding to the question, uh, and the question that you were alluding, alluding to, the context of all that we've discussed of uh, recent news click uh, raids, of uh, demolitions that have been taking place, uh, the failures, arguably, of the judiciary, 
Do you think that the Modi government employs a kind of toolkit of sorts um, in order to uh, roll out its agenda? What is this toolkit if it does exist? Yes, I, I was, yeah, that's, that's the thing I really want to, so, you know, I don't want to call it a toolkit because any dissent in India is always labeled like this is some kind of a toolkit. So I just very quickly want to go through, uh, you know, five or six points that I have. So people who support Modi, and a lot of people do, and not just Modi, the Modi-led BJP, the RSS and all of it, say, well, it's a challenge to dynastic politics of Congress. Not really because of the Sangh Parivar. It's because it's, uh, it's tackling corruption. Not really because crony capitalism. It's bringing development, but actually data on malnutrition, data on, on all kinds of growth is not released. So data has become politicized. Um, it's bringing unity to the country? Absolutely not, because we have seen, you know, a whole lot of toxicity, divisiveness, attacks on minority. It's bringing empowerment to the women. I mean, see the number of tweets that, that are there about this being good for women and minorities, uh, which is, you know, which is, which is, of course, completely not borne out by the fact of the highest leader of the country, I mean, the, the elected leader, highest elected leader of the country, to be silent in the face of, you know, Manipur violence, Asifa uh, rape case in, in Jammu and Kashmir. So it's, it's, that's not true. The only, uh, the fact that it's, they say it's to combat terrorism, but actually none of the political issues have been solved. So the, the reason, their main thing that they resort to is that this is, this works because he is, uh, all the people who, who criticize him have a vested interest in the matter. They criticize him because they're funded by Islamists or communists or they're Western backed and often all three. So the, their main thing is this leveling of this kind of political uh, labeling and leveling these attacks against anyone who criticizes and and this is why i think it's really important to kind of you know counter everything that's thrown at at people who who are critical of the regime with these facts and to say that this is not you know this is not a vested interest argument we are not people who are you know taking money from xyz this is about democratic erosion and finally the main again thing is the weaponization of national pride uh, something that, you know, we didn't talk about economics, but post-colonial neoliberal nationalism, it's, it's the web that I call this, uh, weaponization of national pride, that this is what's making India uh, and Indians be proud. And this came, we saw this in the, con in the Canada example, where across the board, everyone united behind them and said, you know, this is India versus the West. So this, this thing of this anti-Western, selective anti-Western sentiment, where this project promises Westernization uh, pro you know, without being Westernized, and they, uh, it's, it's, it's really riven with contradictions. They're useful contradictions for the regime. And I think it, it works because people outside of the country are often, who are not Indians themselves or not connected to India, are often not working hard enough to understand what's going on. I'm sorry to say that. But it's really important because it's not just about India. This is about democracy. And I think it's important to understand what's happening because the dynamics are pretty similar in lots of places. So, so nationalism is, is their kind of final thing, that this is about Indian pride. But it's not Indian pride because Indian pride is not equal to Hindu pride. And also, not all Hindus would want to be that kind of a person. So yeah. Oh, do you have anything to add? Yeah. Instead of a toolkit, maybe like a modus operandi, like, you know, that there's a particular way in which this regime functions. And what we've seen recently, it always starts, recently, actually, you see that they first start off by demolishing, bulldozing houses. They came bulldozed our house in July before my father was taken away. You bulldoze, there is intimidation, and then judiciary is used as a means to ensure that they languish in jail, continue to languish in jail, while 
murderers, rapists, people who have been convicted in the Gujarat program, they walk out scot-free on bail, but dissenters, they, so students, journalists, uh, intellectuals, officers, they still continue to languish in jail. But beyond that as well, it's, the toolkit goes above and beyond in that it ensures that no one can come up and question this regime. Because like she said, that we are now equating Modi to the nation. We are equating criticizing Modi to being disloyal to the nation. So if anyone speaks up against Modi, you're automatically labeled an anti-national. And then you have draconian laws which are being used, laws of sedition, UAPA, which gives the state absolute power to ensure that the person cannot come forward and hold the regime accountable, which is the most important thing to do right now, because this regime has been left unquestioned for such a long time that it thinks that it is not accountable, it, is, it, does not, um, it is not answerable to anyone at all. So they've forgotten that they are here by the people, they've been elected by the people, and the people somewhere have also forgotten that while they had the power to bring them to this stage, they also have the power to take this away from them. And while there is a modus operandi and a toolkit, there are also means by which that can be countered. And I think it's important now that people start realizing that and start acting towards it. Mr. Um, what Professor Cole referred to, the Canada matter, I think uh, we have a situation where a lot of Indians, I'm not saying they're in a majority, but they're certainly very vocal. They think that whatever India has done, it has done the right thing. So uh, this is... Uh, the new mentality which has emerged. I saw an interview uh, on this very subject by a former head of what is known as the Research and Analysis Wing, which is uh, what is uh, MI6 in this country. And he said that this has never been our dogma. This was simply not done by the Indian intelligence agencies. But what people forget is that after 2014, the dogma changed. The dogma became more what Mossad has been doing. Mossad became the role model as opposed to slick, sophisticated intelligence espionage operations. So uh, uh, people are, a section certainly, are very proud of the fact that, uh, that India did what it did, allegedly. But having said that, I think Persons of Indian origin have a case to answer. People who live in America and Britain and who are wedded to the RSS because they bankrolled the survival and success of Narendra Modi after 2002. And how did that happen? This completely bogus argument that Muslims were taking over the, uh, the state of Gujarat was spread to these people who didn't have sufficient knowledge to reject such a proposal. 9% of the population of Gujarat against 89% of the population who were Hindus. Is, does it make sense to anybody that a 9% would overwhelm 89% of people? And yet the RSS bought their argument and they bankrolled Modi. And that was the beginning of his rise. And also the sophistication that came into being with uh, his, uh, he becoming adept at uh, social media. 
So shifting our focus ever so slightly from what we've been talking about up until now about the current situation and the extent of Modi's impact and that of the BJP, um, we wanted to turn now, I guess, more towards the future and about present resistance against Modi and what can be done next. So perhaps it's, it's natural to talk in kind of parliamentary terms to start off with um, and talk about the Indian National Developmental Inclusive Alliance, or India, um, which is a coalition of opposition parties seeking to unseat the BJP at the next election. And I wanted to pose the question, do you think that this coalition is the answer? Who would like to take that first? Did I go first? Uh, okay, so I should clarify that I don't 100% agree with, with everything that's being said, but you know, that's, that's obviously I'm speaking just for myself and will hold myself to what I'm saying. So I don't think that, um, so, well, yeah, to answer your simple question, yes, absolutely. I think it's really important because I, I worry sometimes that if we make this too much about the man, then we are actually setting ourselves up to be attacked as being somehow, you know, against this person, but not actually being sufficiently critical of the project. Because, you know, the thing is, you can bring any amount of facts and evidence to people who have been enrolled into a hegemonic common sense, and you can, you can, you can show them, like, look, this is destroying you. Look, you're poor because of it. And they'll still, so it's, it's not as if only the rich are supporting. People who are economically losing out quite directly from these projects are also still supporting this project. And that's the, that's the really kind of toxic thing here. And I want to kind of, that's, you know, that's the nuance I want to put here. So I think that, yes, absolutely, the India Alliance is a great idea because the infighting in and the kind of dissensions within the political opposition would have been really helpful for the BJP to continue, you know, to, to do that. It is a difficult thing to pull forward given that the, you know, the interests of the parties at federal levels are often not the same as it is at the state level. Um, but clearly, I think one of the very good decisions that the India Alliance made was, uh, you know, was to, 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 you know, their decision to not appear on these kinds of media, because that's really useful, because media is toxic. I mean, in elections last time, a whole new TV channel was set up, a whole new app was set up. It was called the Namo TV channel. It only played during the elections, and then it was closed off. So media is really important, and it's important to question that. But I think that it's the, the, the reason for doing this is not, I mean, Whatever, I, I, you know, I am obviously, you know, I don't like Bodhi, that's not, but that's beside the point. My point is that the reason for doing this is not because we have somehow decided that we want to unseat this man. I think the important thing is to say that this project is actually really toxic for all kinds of people and therefore, for democracy, we need to have a vibrant political opposition. We need to have constitutional bodies not be subverted. Institutions like the ED, the Enforcement Directorate, not go selectively after people, but actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, hold, you know, hold to hold, be held to to law. So uh, yes, I think the India Alliance is really important, and I think all amounts of information. Uh, that, that we can constantly share is really important. I worry though that what's happening right now, the media part of it gets attention. The academic part of it is not getting attention. And academic knowledge, we're in a university, is long-term knowledge. I mean, the attacks on universities, the attacks on curricula, the changing of textbooks, the restrictions on what sort of research people can, can pursue for their PhD, what sorts of academic papers can get published, and I can give you dozens of examples and you can read my work too, but all of that is the thing that's going to be really damaging because you know that nobody is actually really giving we're not having a lot of alternate universities that are documenting these things in academic work that can be cited for the future so i feel like that's that's the thing that maybe the india alliance also needs to think a bit more about 
because uh, you know because newspaper articles just you know there's there's like an Orwellian memory hole there's this entire news reports that just disappear online <laughs> that you just can't uh, 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 you know access India is, is one of the top uh, places in the world for internet blackouts mm -hmm. and, and you know this is not this is objective fact just check and it's a democracy so so these are the sorts of things I feel like we need to go to the lowest common denominators and get to understand what people are interested in why they support this project and then talk to the ones that don't agree with us because that's the hard part and I hope the India Alliance does more of that I see hope in you know in a whole lot of leaders uh, you know from Trinamool to of course Congress and Rahul Gandhi and the Bharat Jodi Yatra all of that I think was really a, a good kind of move to connect with the people want to add anything no I totally agree with what she's saying because I think one of the reasons why Modi was also able to come in power in 2014 was the fact that there was a lot of anti-incumbency and then the opposition was completely fractured it was in splinters but this time on after two terms of his regime if you may people have realized that the only way to salvage whatever is left of the Indian democracy is to unify and to fight together for a common cause which is to preserve, protect and retain the democracy as we know it. Because this government has been trying to recalibrate a lot of things, recalibrate how Indian you are or recalibrate what makes you a citizen of this country or not. They are also trying to pass various constitutional laws which gives them absolute consolidated centralized power which is not something that you see in a democracy so in order to salvage it it is very important on the and for the first time in so many years we are seeing opposition parties coming together without any infighting and working towards one unified goal and that gives us hope because honestly in today's day and time that is the only thing that keeps people like my family people like my father going hope for a time when constitutionally independent bodies which are currently completely subverted will regain the spine that they had and will actually follow due process none of us are saying that overnight kind of justice will be delivered but the but as long as these bodies continue to function independently without any interference of the executive then there is hope for democracy to survive and that is what I think will be possible with the India Alliance well um, first of all I think uh it goes without saying that BJP's success has been staggering. And this success has been brought about by the singular, I would say, political cunning or brilliance, whatever you like to describe it as, of uh, Narendra Modi, which is why I would still venture to say that he is the fountainhead of all evil. The others may implement collectively, but it, everything starts from him. Uh, having said that, um, the BJP's uh, vote support in percentage terms was about 18% in 2009. It has, it has gone up to 37% in the last election in uh, 2019. So that gives you an idea of the progress that they've made. So they have not only retained the hardcore Hindutva people, but they have added others who you would call are sympathetic to Hinduism, but also who believed in this economic miracle that he was supposed to conjure, but which I dare say has not happened. And so in those circumstances, it's a, a very open situation. Having said that, there are two factors which need to be taken into account. One is that there is still a feeling 
among people that they may vote for Congress or an opposition party in a state election, but may go back to voting for Modi in the national election. So we have upcoming now elections in uh, five states, uh, among them three important uh, Hindi-speaking states, uh, and the results of these elections would be very interesting. But then, if, assuming Congress win in Chhattisgarh, in Madhya Pradesh, in Rajasthan, uh, then can they retain that same support in the national election which will follow next year? So that's the first question. The second uh, question, and this is again something which uh, comes at me from various people, is that the India Alliance needs to find a person who will take on Modi, one to one, because some people feel that politics has become very personality oriented. It's no longer party versus party, although it's supposed to be in a parliamentary democracy just that, but uh, it is uh, perhaps not the case in India, where psychologically people think that, you know, you've got to put up somebody against Modi. Now, in that battle, I don't think the, the opposition at the moment has anybody who can rival him because of the sheer money power and muscle power and, and the power from the government that he will enjoy. So, what will they do? Can they come up with a, a collective alternative, a sort of shadow cabinet, but without really a leader, but a convener more than a leader? Now, if you go back to 1977 and that to me is a good example um, in terms of what is about to happen, that after the emergency of Indira Gandhi, she lost the elections very badly. Now she was by far the supreme leader of the country and there was no real alternative in the opposition ranks. But the opposition cobbled together at the last minute a loose coalition and they defeated uh, the Congress. So that similar reenactment is taking place to the extent that this time I would say the India Alliance is more organized than what the opposition were in 1977. But this one question or two questions still come up in my mind. One is do people want one individual to be an alternative? And the second question is that, uh, you know, will people think that uh, for the center Modi is a better bet? Um, I, sorry, can I just quickly say something? I think that the content of, uh, you know, the, the substance and content of an understanding of nationalism, I hope the India Alliance do something to change that. Because in November 2018, prior to the last elections that brought this government to power, the BJP lost five main states. They lost five elections. By February 2019, at the start of February, they would, nobody could have been absolutely certain that they were going to win. And then Pulwama happened, and the hyper Pulwama attacks happened, and the hyper-nationalism kind of uh, ensured that everyone got on board, and it was very difficult to criticize. So it's really important to understand that even if they lose the, the regional elections, that doesn't guarantee the fact that the, that the national elections will run the same way, because hyper-nationalism is something that can be mobilized at 
uh, you know, at any point against them. I think that I think this is at the risk of repeating myself like a broken record, not just about Modi. There is Yogi Adityanath, you know, um, uh, the chief minister of Uttar Pradesh waiting in the wings. So, uh, you know, were at some point Modi to outlive his usefulness, there will be another person in his place. I think it is the project. And, uh, you know, and I've again said this before, but I'll say that you can think of a number of countries globally currently where something very similar is happening. There are people like Modi, they're electorally legitimated, not democratic, they're misogynist authoritarians, they claim a monopoly on uh, nationalism, they denounce their critics as anti-national, they say that they're going to challenge neoliberalism and they profit from crony capitalism. It's a formula, it, it applies in lots of countries and therefore it is about a project that is about a subversion of a combination of liberal democratic and market you know, economies coexisting to make the incrementalist changes. What we're seeing is the undermining of that. And it's happening often, sadly, with, uh, you know, with common consent in lots of contexts. So I think it really is like there'll be another, there'll be another Modi, honestly, if, uh, you know, if, if, if that's what the project needs. Um, so. And I suppose the question that that lends itself to is even in an India beyond Modi and arguably beyond Yogi and beyond BJP, um, what do you believe are likely to be the lasting impacts of his legacy? And have the country's spirits arguably been so fundamentally changed that it, it'll take more than a couple electoral cycles um, to change uh, the spirit of India today? Absolutely. And I think education, again, I'll, I'll come back to it. Education is really key because now we have a whole generation of young people who've studied this stuff at school, who are studying this at, at university level. And for them, this is it. This is the India they've grown up in. This is the India they know. So to those of us who are older and who say, well, actually, this is not how it always was. It's, it's to them, it's distant past, you know. So, uh, and given, uh, you know, earlier there was this, uh, so in, by 2014, the whole Islamophobia post 9-11 thing really helped the, you know, the Modi government make its, the BJP, sorry, I should say, make its case in that why we need a Hindu identity. Currently, and I'm hoping I'm, I'm wrong and the news click isn't an example, but the current geopolitical great power return to great power rivalry, Sinophobia in its most unreconstructed forms, is also has the potential of you know creating those kinds of nationalism because the whole thing about going after the media currently right now with the news click case was that they're pro-chinese so <laughs> it's you know there's there's an evolution of right-wing strategies and and i think that the the effects of this will be very hard to undo and i don't see one election win great i mean anti-incumbency in addition to everything else hopefully that that does happen and democracy is preserved but I think the effects of this at the level of popular common sense, especially amongst young people who are more connected to technology, as well as to older people who have just disconnected from all of that. It's like politics is just very messy. Let's not think about it. And that kind of thing always helps totalitarianism, you know, kind of um, um, creep. So. And as the last question from us, in the face of all of this and in the face of um, not just what's happening today, but the debris that it's likely to leave behind, how do you keep hope for this Kamiyabi, um, you know, in an India beyond Modi and what keeps you going? And I think Thank Dr. Bhatt, you might be the best person to speak to it. No, but I think in the end, hope is the only thing one latches on to. And I very firmly believe that there is going to come a time when things are going to change, where people who have perpet who have been responsible for ethical, sorry, for ethnic cleansing, for 
the Gujarat program, for the lynchings, all of it, the whole ideology, as she was, as she was saying earlier, that Modi, while I very firmly believe that it was his politics that changed the political landscape in the country, 2002 was the first time when BJP was able to actually consolidate and cement their power because of what he did in Gujarat. But people want to emulate what he's doing. People want to be like Modi. And that ideology needs to be countered. And I very much believe that there are people still out there, like my father, like so many other students and activists and brave journalists who are still putting their life on the line, putting their career on the line, and they're trying to bring about a change. And I firmly believe that things will change and we will be able to salvage whatever is left of our democracy and then build it up from ground up. The project, as we've been discussing, really began under Prime Minister Vajpayee. So the six years under him uh, really commenced the project. It was under the radar at that time. But 10 years of a Congress-led government thereafter failed to undo the damage. And, and so therefore, when Modi came in, he came in brazenly, he's done it with impunity. Uh, and so he had, nevertheless, a platform on which to build on. And so he has succeeded in doing that. My last point would be that uh, we cannot rule out uh, Pulwama 2.0. Mm. Uh, okay. Uh, and hopefully we are all wrong. Hopefully, <laughs> you know, no, nobody has to die. And hopefully no major attack happens. And, and yeah, it's, it's just, um, it, yeah. Uh, so to, uh, to your question, why, where is the potential for hope? I think the potential for hope is in the, uh, uh, in the students, uh, uh, you know, in India, in the students, in the farmers' protests, in the, you know, in the various kinds of, of journalists, um, activists, people, uh, parliamentarians, members of, of, of the parliament and opposition, uh, judges, a whole lot of people who are at their different levels trying to do the right thing and trying to, to survive under these very difficult circumstances. So there's that. Uh, the hope is also in, in those of us who are writing and chronicling about this, those of us, people like you and Neha and others who are, and, and you know, and the union, people who are organizing these conversations so that we all think about this more. That's that's part of hope. I mean, because uh, because thinking and talking and ideas and, and uh, theories, if they want Aren't so dangerous. Uh, critical race theory would not be that topic of conversation, and textbooks would not be revised here, and gender ideology would not be seen as such a threat everywhere. So ideas matter, and this is why even the conversations, even the ideas, all of this matters. The thing with hope is that, of course, it, it doesn't necessarily lead to action, and we have to just like you know make sure that our hope for change doesn't stop us from being able to see the things that are. Uh, obstructing that change in the present because uh, I mean I think it's uh, it, it's it's really a low bar to, after at this point in human evolution in 2023 simply to say that people should have equal rights and people should be able, able to have representative governments and people should have recourse to judicial remedy when when their rights are violated and these are the basic things that we're talking about and we're saying that this this must happen so yeah that's that's the hope that uh, you know it's it's absurd and we can't go on but we must go on Perhaps to answer your question more directly, I think it could take 30 years to undo the damage. And uh, uh, we live in hope, but it means that 30 years of a non-BJP government. Thank you very much. So I think before we move to questions, could we just have a round of applause for our panel?
So, yes, has anyone got... If we open up questions to the floor, do we have any questions for any of our speakers? Uh, yeah. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Uh, hi. <laughs> hi. Um, there was some discussion about the passing of some constitutional laws which would uh, give the central government absolute centralized powers. Um, could you please uh, talk a little more about that? I also have another linked question, I think, which is more of about social psychology, I think. Um, why do you think the people of India are unable to derive a sense of national pride from the absolutely commendable values enshrined in the constitution? And why do you think people are becoming more militaristic towards their perspective as vis-a-vis -vis what constitutes nationalism? And perhaps more importantly, what can be done to remedy this in the future? Thank you. Go ahead, I think no, the laws question was you, but I'm happy to answer if, yeah, if you want me to do that. Uh, so the laws, I think the ones that, I, I don't know which specific bit of the conversation you're referring to, but the two laws that I was thinking of is one which is currently in debate. I can't, I'm not a, a, a lawyer, <laughs> so I can't give you the exact title, but I'm very happy to send it to you. And I've certainly shared it on social media when, you know, a, a few days ago. So there was this one of them is about in the interest. So it's meant to ensure data protection. But actually, that will, in practice, uh, critics claim that it's going to restrict people's access to information when they want that. So that's that's one, uh, because it will make the RTI, the right to information, in, in effect, much less effective. And you would not be able, because anything could be withheld in the interests of data protection, that kind of a thing. But again, this is not a, uh, a legal thing, but there, there is legal qualified legal commentary on this. And the other one that I'm thinking of, again, I'll have to go 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 to see which one it is. But that's the specific one that's I think it's in the again, it's it's at the stage, it's not a law yet. And but it's it's something that is proposed and that has to do with that legislation has to do with how uh, internet technology companies, how their data how how the extent, the balance between privacy and surveillance in, in data, and it's about defining one particular aspect as data that would now be open to being surveilled, which would make any kind of privacy really difficult. So that's that's a, a kind of layperson's description of it, but I'm very happy to send you the, the names of those two uh, legislations that I'm talking about. Uh, the question about why are people not able to derive fr pride from the constitution? Uh, this is, I mean, this is the thing. So, you know, so this is not a project that's, that's happened now, it's been in the Making and the RSS was founded in 1925. Their whole idea was that, and you know, and they, they, their whole idea was of an ethnic nationalism. They looked up to Nazi Germany, the founders, and there's, you know, again, written evidence, not telling you anything that's, you know, that's, that's subjective. And their point was that India should be a Hindu nation. Non-Hindu minorities can live in India, but they should, you know, they can be Muslims, but they have to see Hindu India as the, the, the main kind of identity, the dominant identity. So that was that project. So even before 1947, when India became, uh, you know, after, uh, India, before India became independent, there were two competing nationalisms that were happening. One was this nationalism and the other was the secular Nehruvian kind of nationalism, developmental nationalism. So that contest was already there. And then through the initial decades, there was this experiment with all its problems and, you know, massacres against other kinds of minorities. Let's not forget, you know, 1984 and Nelly massacre and all kinds of things. So there was, it was, it had a lot of problems, but it was a project, an experiment in secular 
Nehruvian nationalism and in constitutional values, etc. So what this is, is actually the resurgence of that other kind of nationalism, which was always there. It was incipient. And given the changes starting from 90, early 1990s with both the communalization, and which is sectarian increase and uh, religious polarization and div divisiveness with the Ayodhya mosque demolition as being a spectacular incident and the inverted commas liberalization of the Indian economy. These two things having drastically changed the politics and the economics of you know, uh, uh, common sense in the country. And that opened the sort of the, the space for the right wing project to succeed. And then comes along this leader who has been the chief minister of Gujarat who's seen as, okay, this person can, can plug this gap and be that leader. And initially, this leader is presented as somebody who is going to be about Hindutva and development. And then development kind of fades into the background. And now this is 2019 election was just an out and out nationalist election. So the constitutional values don't survive in a vacuum where they're not rehearsed, where they're not deemed to be important at in institutions, in education and all of that. So the constitution itself is a target. I mean, the, you know, there's, there's voices in the RSS that wants the constitution changed, that wants the name India to be changed to Bharat as you might have followed recently. So it's very sad. What can be done about it? I'm afraid nothing in the very short term. We just have to, we just have to keep talking and getting people to think and, and maybe even talk to people who don't agree with us and, and get them to see why this is problematic. But just evidence will not help because people will just shut off those, the things they don't agree with. So it's, it's like a catch-22 and I think as societies lots of many globally are dealing with the exact same problem or similar problem, not exact same. You referred to centralization of powers. I think there's one move which uh, could be interpreted uh, as happening on those uh, in, the, in, in, in on, uh, along such lines is uh, that a matter of one election for the entire country has been referred to a committee which is headed by a former president of India. And that um, in a country like India with so many states and uh, elections taking place at different times is a controversial topic. But this is perhaps part of uh, the vision uh, of the current uh, powers that be, that if there is such an election, then Modi would have an edge uh, as compared to the opposition. Also, just to add on to what both of them said, that there, there are certain uh, propositions provisions which will, so this has been proposed to the parliament where the Indian Penal Code, the IPC, the CRPC, the Criminal Procedural Code, they are to be replaced by what the government is now proposing. Names again, I can uh, send yeah. it to you, which gives the, the, um, the ruling party absolute power over the judiciary. What, happen, what is happening today is that there is still a separation of executive from the judiciary. With this, they have the provision wherein the ruling party can take action against any sitting judge or action against any judicial, judicial officer if a, a judgment passed by them or if anything that they say in court is against the regime or is perceived to be against the, uh, the prime minister or the... Um, security of the state in a way. So here what would happen is any judge will now think twice before passing any judgment which is anti-regime. And that is dangerous because now people will not stick their head out. So that is one very important thing. Second, in the facade of repelling the said act, the seditious act, 
they have now broadened the concept. So there is no fixed definition of sedition. So writing a tweet, again, questioning Modi or questioning anyone can be labeled as sedition as well. So this is what I mean by centralized consolidated power. And just, I'm so sorry, but also adding on to the second question or the second half of your question, I guess, which was, why do we not, why are we taking pride in, uh, in religious sentiments, if anything, or nationalism, religious nationalism? For the longest time now, all of these machineries, be it the media, be it the political uh, campaigners, they have been hammering and they have been ridiculing things that we originally used to take pride in. We used to take pride in being secular. We used to take pride in being liberal. But now secular is being replaced by secular. Liberals are libtards. If anyone, uh, if there is a journalist who's actually doing their job, telling the people exactly what is happening on the ground, ground reality, they are now labeled as prostitutes. So things that we used to take pride in is now being ridiculed 24-7 in media, which has some impact on the younger generation, which is very easily, uh, it can, they can be very easily moved from one direction to the other. So they are very personable. So, yeah. Thank you. I think we have time for one last question. Um, uh, yeah. Hi, I'm Nadi. Uh, so, uh, Professor Call, you were talking about uh, the role of education and academics, for example. So, uh, I want to ask you about the recent case of Sabhisachi Das, and he was. Uh, uh, he wrote a research paper exploring the possibility of electoral manipulation in the favor of the BJP government in the 2019 Lok Sabha polls. So how do you see that uh, when someone is even trying to uh, basically uh, tell that the elections that were held were not credible, the legitimacy of the election and the electoral process is questioned and brought into the mass media and still the people, uh, you're talking about the common sense and you were talking about how uh, in the hegemonic regime when people are brought face to face with the evidence and still they do not wake up and they don't see that uh, they are in a situation where they are also being harmed and education uh, is being changed with the new education policy and there's propaganda behind that and within the new education policy the RSS played a huge role while making that policy and now it is being laid down. So when they're catching the students so young, so how do you think that uh, these students who are going to grow up in an India which, uh, in which they don't really see a different reality and they would never be introduced to that reality. So how do we even see those 30 years that you were talking about of non-BJP when uh, people and citizens who are actually <coughs> growing up in that space, it's actually a vacuum and they are not being introduced to different realities and academics who are trying to uh, quote unquote, you know, trying to get uh, talk about the sinister plans of the government or they're going against the government. Uh, their papers, they are being, uh, they have to be forcefully being resigned from the universities that they were part of. So Thank how you. does a, a free academic uh, culture proliferate in a country and in a space like that and where the education is also uh, laced with propaganda. Mm -hmm. uh, is this the last question or should yeah, we collect a few questions? 
No. Um, You're good would to you want to? I think we should ask the people who had raised their hands, okay. the two of them, um, and then we can just... Of course. Yeah, because they had their hands up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't want to... Who answers questions? There was one hand there uh, and one hand here. The time is on, but first. So, um, go on. Yeah, happy to see it? Okay, all right, okay. So, um, yeah, just to... Uh, so, uh, Nidhi, did you say? Yeah, uh, it, it doesn't. How does critical thinking survive? It doesn't very well. It survives in pockets, but all kinds of oppressions, no oppression lasts forever. So the thing is to think, in, I mean, it, it's no consolation in, in the now, but all empires, all, you know, kind of um, oppressions, every kind of injustice, whether, you know, enslavement, racism, whatever, everything has, has an expiry date, right? Because time, in time, uh, every everything kind of overshoots and ends up, you know, consuming itself. So so will this project, uh, whether that's 30 years or three or whatever. You know, nobody predicted the Berlin Wall. We can't predict any of these things. But I think it is important to know that it's not forever, and that's why it's important to keep the critical thinking in the present alive. The paper that she's referring to was a paper published by a journal, uh, by an academic. It was it was not peer reviewed, but it, it seemed to be uh, you know it seemed to be validated by people who who know the, the methods that this person had used, and they were saying that there were ways in which the electoral uh, results weren't fair. Now that is part of an academic discourse. It's you know it wasn't it could just have lived on uh, one of the you know one of uh, one of the archives online, but instead this very kind of very. Um, anxious and insecure targeting of even the slightest kind of dissent is actually is actually indicative of the uh, you know of the problems of a system that does not that knows that they, it has people supporting it but that it isn't you know the right and the just are not with it and this is why i think that you know it otherwise if it was a more confident nationalist uh, you know regime they would be like okay there is a you know there is a critical paper and that's that uh, so the fact that it, to the extent that people get expelled and you know appointments get changed, all of that, the reason that it, this this is itself, you know, I would go back to saying something like, you know, if we look at it from the the power violence thing, you know, Hannah Arendt's point that you know when power and violence are opposites, so that you see an increased resort to violence when you know that consensual power is actually not not with you. And so maybe this kind of going after every little thing is indicative of a regime that's not confident of itself. And that's, that's why it has to constantly indoctrinate people and constantly use propaganda and, uh, you know, for, for, so that people can't see the evidence that they need to see in order to be able for them to, to decide for themselves. The thing that those of us outside the country really need to be aware of is their whole appeal to indigenization, going back to your point. You know, this use of indigeneity and anti-West, anti-colonial as some kind of an automatic virtuosity that renders them immune from being able to do the same kinds of uh, oppressive, uh, you know, exercise of power. Because that's what they do. At the end of the day, it's all about, oh, if you're critiquing that, you're just sitting in Cambridge Union. You're not, it's literally like that. They'll say, you're just sitting there. What do you know? But my point is, that's what we've got to get people to see that, you know, a multi-billionaire who's sitting, who has a, a mansion in Mumbai is, is, is there. But is that person going to be the one who's going to be able to, you know, speak truth to power? Or are you here, even if you are on the other side of the world? So we have to keep challenging these, these things. But, you know, there's, there's no easy answer, especially with educational institutions, because it's so long term. But I mean, I can, I can give you links to certain, to, to work on, on this, to look at how this kind of thing is so multifaceted, so clever.